Boy, our souls have been fed today already. We thank you for Conrad and leading us in worship and hearing about Honduras and Urbana and all kinds of good stuff. And I've experienced some of those kinds of things uh, in the past and commend what they said uh, to you just by my own personal experience as well. Well, today uh, I invite you to pitch your mental and spiritual tense with me in the book of Philippians. We're going to look at uh, just three verses, uh, verses uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And I'm going to read it, and I think it's always a good idea to stand up uh, for the reading of God's Word. And uh, just follow as I read. And Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Now, Christianity, among other things, is a worldview, and it uh, defines how the universe came into existence through the creative power of God. It reveals what the world is about and the role that Christians play in it. And it reminds us that at the center of a Christian worldview is knowing God as he has revealed himself. So it's primarily not about us, it's about God. And he is, God has revealed himself in a couple of ways. First of all, he's revealed himself through the created order, uh, the universe, the creation of the universe. We call this general revelation. Uh, the second is that he has also uh, revealed himself not just through the created order, where he is recognized as a God of power and creativity and might and so forth, but he reveals himself through his word as well. And we call this special revelation. And this is where we find that God is a God of love and a God of hope, and that he has a plan for the future of his people. General revelation is something that God gives to everyone. All people see it. You can look up and you can see the stars and the planets and the the universe that is there and the orderliness of it and the uniqueness of it and the splendor of it and see something of the character of God. And uh, all people can see evidence of a supreme being who's responsible for the orderliness of the world. And this is true whether people admit it or not. But uh, we do not see in general revelation that God is triune, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't see in general revelation that God has a plan for the redemption of the created order. We don't learn anything about the Trinity and salvation. 
uh, in general revelation. And for that, we need the word of God. We need the scriptures. And this is called special revelation. Now, unfortunately, not everybody has the benefit of uh, special revelation found in the word of God. Certainly, I think uh, there are hidden tribes in various parts of the world, not to mention the average citizen in, post-Christian, in the post-Christian West. They haven't heard the stories of the Bible and the redemption that those stories, in fact, reveal. And this is what the mission of the Apostle Paul and others, and even to others today, is really all about. Uh, Paul sought to reach people and start churches among those who did not understand the mission of Jesus Christ or the convicting work of the Spirit or the character of God. And so Paul writes, he says, This I pray that you may love, that your love for God may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So knowledge precedes love. You cannot love that which you do not know. And Paul understood that if you know God, you love God. And to love God is to apply what you know about God and his will to everyday life. And when you apply his will to your everyday life, what you are in fact doing is living for the glory of God. Now, in Psalm 119, the author says this, Teach me your decrees. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. How sweet are your words to my taste. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes so that I might know you, enjoy you, love you, and conform my life to you. You know, one of the questions with which we wrestle, is how in the world do I get the truth that's located in my head to drop 18 inches into my heart so that it can be lived out in my life? And we're all working for that. And I think the rule for this is very simple, but it's extremely demanding. We turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise of God. When I talk about meditation on Scripture, it's just simply the activity of calling to mind and applying to ourselves the ways and the purposes of God so that we might learn and follow the truth in order that we might commune with God himself. In other words, it's an act of holy thought that God uses to reproduce his character in our lives and for his glory. It just has a very practical goal. He says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's a bit of a mouthful, and what I'd like to do is break it down, because there are three implications that emerge from this short text. 
Uh, The first is that we will approve the things that are excellent. Second, we'll become sincere and blameless and authentic. And third, we'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that will enable us to glorify God. I'm going to take and comment on each one a little bit uh, at a time here. And the first uh, implication of knowing God is that we're going to approve the things that are excellent. And when we talk about approving the things that are excellent, we're talking about things that really matter in life. Now, Paul's choice of terms here paints a picture of a discriminating buyer. Uh, He's just out uh, looking at competing products before purchasing the one that stands out from the rest. For instance, if you're out to buy a new car, you might go to several dealerships, test drive a car that you might be interested in, and then at the end of that time, you pick the one that stands out to be best for you. Now in the ancient world, the idea is simply that a prudent farmer would, if you please, test drive a yoke of oxen to make sure that the two oxen that are tied to the same yoke have the same strength and the same stamina before buying them. So, here's the point. When God gives you a heart that loves others, you develop a taste for those things that last. In chapter 4 of this letter, the Apostle Paul advises the Philippian church members to value what is true and honorable and pure. You know, sort out the most important issues from the, less, from, the, from the less significant ones. It's important to do that. And so Paul had to correct, actually, the saints in the church at Corinth, in the church at Rome. In other words, they were focusing on petty issues that really didn't matter. You know, can I go to a local store and buy a steak and bring it home and barbecue it uh, when that steak might have been offered to idols uh, originally? Or, you know, can I jog on a quiet afternoon on the Sabbath day? You know, there are all kinds of legalisms floating around, and the Apostle Paul says, hey, listen, don't waste your time on the superficial issues. Focus on what will bring unity and harmony to the body of Christ. Focus what will bring glory and honor to the person of Christ. And so when we talk about uh, uh, living for the Lord, the first thing we want to do is approve those things that are excellent and give ourselves to those things. Second implication of knowing God is that you become sincere and blameless and authentic. Uh, What people see on the outside is what you are on the inside. See, God's flow, or I should say God's love will not flow through one whose life is a shame. Uh, What we want and what he expects are genuineness. We want that and we disparage pretense. Uh, We don't like it. We're guilty of it, but we don't particularly like it. Now, in light of that, what I'd like to do for just a moment here is uh, to mention three ways in which people commonly fake it. 
in our day and age. And I'm going to ask you to participate with me a little bit. And if you've ever been guilty of uh, one that I, I, I give you, an example I give you at least one time in your life, I just want you to raise your hand, okay? Wait till I ask the question. Uh, don't raise your hand yet. Uh, first, uh, let's say that you've been watching TV for a couple of hours. You're slouched on the couch, just mindless, looking at the television when you hear a car pulling into the garage. And when you hear the car pulling into the garage, it may be your parents, it may be your spouse, it may be, you know, a friend that happens to know you. It might be, you know, anybody. And so uh, immediately you get up off of the couch, you turn off the television, you grab a book, set it open beside you, <laughs> you take your briefcase, spread out some important looking papers, and then while they're walking in the door, you're doing some push-ups on the floor. <laughs> uh, anybody here ever done that? Pretended to be ambitious, when in reality you were nothing but a couch potato, okay? Anybody <laughs> Okay, a few honest people in the room. Let me give you a second one, all right? Uh, you, have you ever been in a circle of friends, maybe acquaintances, and somebody mentions a person, a book title, or a current event, something that you feel you should know something about? And even though you didn't have a ghost of a guess of what, in fact, they were discussing, you stood there and you nodded your head, you looked serious, you made some nebulous platitudes, so to speak, uh, just pretending you were clued in, okay? Uh, anybody here at least once in your life? Then, okay, more participation here on this one. Uh, the third one, uh, you're driving your car along the freeway and you get to a place where there's multiple interchanges and uh, the fellow on your right is actually in an exit lane and he needs to get over and uh, be in the lane that will continue not as exiting and he's trying to get your eye contact. And you know that he's there, but you have no intention of letting him in. So you <laughs> pretend you don't see him so that you won't resemble a selfish jerk but just an unobservant nice guy. Anybody ever done that? All right. You know... All right. See, all of, us, all of us has carried around the knowledge that we've pretended. We've pretended to know things that we really didn't know. We've pretended to achieve things that we really didn't achieve. We've pretended to work hard when in reality we were just wasting time. And we've pretended to be smarter and kinder and better than we really are. And this uh, passage brings in a little bit of an interesting story of self-incrimination on my own part. Um, <clears throat> let me just share with you a little bit of a story about that. About, do you remember about 25, 26, 27 years ago uh, in the Christian community, they used to have these huge promise keeper conventions in the big stadiums of the world. How many of you are familiar with those promise keeper things, you know? Well, I was pastoring a church on the West Coast, uh, up in the Central Coast, I should say, uh, during that time, and uh, <clears throat> I took a hundred or more of our men to the Promise Keeper Convention that was being held at the Anaheim Stadium. 
Now, that stadium has since been torn down and replaced with the park that the Angels play in right now. But we stayed in a hotel about 15, 20-minute walk from the stadium, all hundred of us. We were in various rooms in a hotel, and we would be able to walk over to the stadium in the evening and then walk back when it was over two, three, four hours later. And uh, each night we had a discussion about how things were going. Now, Promise Keepers, as good as it was, wasn't really my kind of a conference. There was just too many men together without a softness of a woman and just way, way too much testosterone going on in that, in that particular thing. And by the end of the week, you know, I, I had pretty much had it. You know, I'd gone all day, and the last night came, and uh, I was still in my room, and all of the men had gone over there. We didn't always sit together, little groups all over the stadium of men. And anyway, uh, I was a little bit late, running a little bit late, and so I... I uh, started walking over there, and about five minutes into my walk, I turned around and went back to my car and got in my car and drove to the stadium. Uh, but it wasn't Anaheim Stadium. It was Dodger Stadium. <laughs> and uh, I went there, and I parked in the lot, and I bought a ticket from a scalper, said a really nice, great little seat there, and uh, watched the entire game. And then I looked at my watch and realized I'd better get back because uh, each night I had led a discussion of the blessedness of the evening before all of these hundred men. And so I literally ran to my car and I busted down Interstate 5 and I just, God, please don't let anybody be in that big conference room before I get there. And uh, I was the first one. And I walked into the room, and I just breathed a big sigh of relief. The first person that walked in, about a minute later, was my uh, a wonderful worship pastor. And he looked at me, and he says, that was a great night, wasn't it? <laughs> and I said, you know, I think tonight was my favorite night of the whole week. <laughs> Anyway, and they all came in there, and if anybody would have asked me, I, I would have come clean, believe me, I would have come clean, but nobody did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I led a wonderful discussion. I mean, the blessing that the men had and everything, and I was nodding there, oh, that's really, really good, and, and everything, and it went on for about an hour and a half, and uh, then everybody went to bed. And I also confess, I've never come clean with the men of that church. I, I'm kind of waiting for the right timing on something like that. So, you know. Anyway, let me get to the third implication and then we'll get done here. <laughs> um, you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which I probably needed for that night, uh, that will enable us to glorify God. You know, if we... If we need an overarching term for which to live, then probably glorifying the Lord in our daily life would be it. You know, the word glory means weighty. You know, if you've uh, been to the Sierras or the Rockies or the Andes or the Alps or the Himalayas and you look at these huge mountains, and you look at it and you say, my goodness, 
Uh, it's glorious. It's weighty. It's, it has matter. It's substantial. It's consequential. You know, there's a little uh, gopher that was in my backyard uh, a while back, and he was always digging down into a hole and then up with a little mound of dirt like that. And I've never looked at that little mound of dirt and said, that's glorious, you know, compared to the mountain. It had no matter. It wasn't substantial. It wasn't consequential. It wasn't any of, the, of that. And let me make the transfer here. Glorious people are those who are weighty. They matter. They have substance. And we all long for that. We all long for it. You know, I want to be significant. I want to matter. I want to be consequential. You know, have you ever asked your, yourself, what's the point of my life? What have I accomplished? Do I even matter to anybody? Am I a glorious individual? Do I carry any weight with the people that know me? And these are all glory questions. And being able to answer them in the affirmative is absolutely essential to our spiritual and emotional well-being. Now, just let me illustrate, okay? I'll tell you a little story about Suzanne and me. Um, I met Suzanne uh, the summer before our senior year of high school. Now, her father was an Air Force chaplain, and he happened to be stationed in Goose Bay, Labrador, a satellite base way 3,000 miles above New York uh, City itself. And she and her uh, brother came out and spent time with her grandparents, and they went to the same church, uh, had been there for many, many years, that I actually became a Christian in the year before and was part of the youth group during that time. And so I got to know her a little bit in the summer before our senior year and uh, thought she was splendid, liked her brother as well. When summer ended, she went back to Labrador and graduated from high school. And uh, then you know, went to college in Westmont, and I was in, in uh, Orange County here. And uh, we sporadically kept up with each other uh, the first two, three years of college. Every once in a while, we would drop each other a line or something like that, but not very much. And part of the reason was because she had to burn through a couple of boyfriends. But, uh, <laughs> but then in the, in the last... Uh, in the last year, we became just a little bit more intentional about keeping up. We wrote a little bit more often and uh, found out a little bit more about what was going in each other's lives. And I was living with a group of guys, good, good guys, Christian guys, in an apartment or so. And uh, you know, I'd been with the same guys for two or three years. And uh, in the fourth year, they said they noticed a change. They, they said, you know, your relationship with, with Suzanne had deepened some. And, uh, you know, uh, you don't seem to have any expectations, but she's obviously a pretty good friend. What makes her so special? And I thought about it a little bit, and, you know, I, I said something to the tune of, you know, well, she's pretty, and she's friendly, and she's popular, and she's spiritual. She's involved in her school. She's involved in her church. Uh, she's a good thinker. She's a great conversationalist. And I said, but 
the clincher is this. I, I've really never had someone in my life that made me matter like she does. Uh, you know, when, when I'm with her, I feel like I matter. I feel like I'm consequential. In fact, I feel like I'm glorious. You know, we've all experienced a hollow feeling of being blown off by somebody to whom we desperately wanted to matter to. And it, it, it's such a hollow feeling. We, we feel absolutely inconsequential. And when we feel inconsequential, what we are getting is a, a true understanding of what hell is like. And just, just a couple of words about this. You know, as a Christian, when we die, we are immediately transformed to glory into the presence of our Lord. And when that happens, everything that's associated with sin and ugliness in our lives will drop off. It will be no more. And everything that's associated with beauty and love will explode in glory, which simply means the relational friendship aspect in heaven will be infinitely better than it is now. Uh, in hell, it's just the opposite. Everything associated with the image of God in you and in me, if we re reject Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the ability to love and all that will be totally ripped away because that's associated with God. And everything that's associated with sin and ugliness will explode in ugliness, which simply means that you are incapable of forming any relationships. It's absolutely lonely, just simply because everybody is full of anger. And you can imagine being eternally in hell and not being able to have a friend. You see, our primary purpose when we gather together each week here at uh, Harvest is to corporately tell God he matters. God, you matter most. You're the most important thing in the world, and we want to live for your glory, and glory means matter. You're consequential. You're not just a, a mannequin that we just come and look at and fellowship with one another. You're the reason why we're here. And so we say, you matter, God. We corporately say that. And not only that, but we also remind each other of the same thing. Every one of us, you matter to the Lord. You are a glorious individual. You are, you, what you say contains weight. It's important. It matters. And so we communicate that to one another and we remind God that we know where he's at as well. You know, all the self-actualization in the world will not do near for our souls as the realization that when the God of the universe looks at us, his eyes well up in tender love. And when the reality of that sinks in, we become a whole person and we no longer need to go through life looking for strokes. We can just be ourselves and contribute to one another and allow others to contribute to us. And it's ironic that people reject Christianity 
because they think it's too narrow, it's too confining. It makes you feel bad about yourself because there's rules that you can't keep. And so our mission is simply this, to communicate the grace and love of God. Uh, it's, you know, his love is so lofty, so overwhelming, so totally out of control that we can't even begin to comprehend the love of God in our own lives. All we can really do is rejoice in the fact that we are under it and somehow communicate it to one another, reminding them again and again and again just how deeply important and significant and weighty and glorious they really are, from the smallest child to the oldest adult. We all need it in the body of Christ. Father, we thank you for uh, what we've enjoyed today and uh, the mission reports and what you're doing in other parts of the world and uh, the Urbana Conference that has been a launching pad for so many young people uh, and had such great impact worldwide as well. And uh, thinking through uh, all that you've especially uh, done for us and we thank you for that and pray, Father, that you'll keep us true to you the weeks and months and years ahead as we uh, continue to ponder uh, what uh, life is about. In Christ's name, amen. Can I, uh, before we...